First John chapter 4 is an incredible chapter all about God's love for us. All about God's love for us. And it's on the mission-critical importance of love and of loving others. First John 4, 15 and 16. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. Some people did that this morning for the first time. God lives in them. And they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. This is astonishing. You know, my first year as a pastor at at Elam's Ministry Development School, it was literally one of the first couple of speakers. Guy comes in, he's obviously highly credentialed. He has uh, a significant nationwide influence. Um, He's obviously well-regarded. He gets up to speak. And this is how he starts off the session. He starts off by saying, hey, okay, so as a bunch of Christians and as a bunch of pastors here, uh, I think that there's something we can all agree on before we get into our content today. So we're all feeling pretty comfortable about this. He's obviously going to make some statement that we're all very up, up, you know, all good with. And he says this. He says, can we all agree that God is not loving? Exactly. You could have heard a pin drop. My first thought was, did I hear that right? My second thought was, I do not know who's on quality control around here, but this guy slipped through the cracks. He went on, however, to explain in light of 1 John 4. He says this, he says, God is not loving, God is love. It is an entirely different order of being. It's like we don't look at a chair and go, that chair is so chair-like. No, it's not chair-like, it's a chair. God is not loving. Lovingness is not an attribute that God has. It's not an extra thing that he does. He is love. It is the core of his identity. It is who he is. The concept that we have of love comes from the existence of the person of God. God is love. And the, the message this morning is this. You are loved. You are you're loved. Now, I don't know about you, but as a young Christian, that was, the, that was my biggest struggle, believing that I was loved. Like, I could believe that God loved the person next to me, because he was quite a nice bloke, really, and yeah, I, mean, I quite liked him, so I'm assuming God loved him, because God's better at this than me. In fact, I could believe that God could love almost anybody, but I really struggled to believe that God loved me. I was pretty sure that God put up with me, that there was something in the contract that said he had to have some sort of lovey feelings towards me, But I really struggled with this for many years as a young Christian. And I want us to talk about this today. Because whether we feel loved or whether we don't feel loved changes how we live. Uh, When Liz and I were first friends, there were three of us that were great mates. We hung out all the time. Uh, Me and Liz and this other guy. And uh, and as I began to fall in love with Liz, uh, the problem was is that I would be at work and she'd be off uh, at a rugby match with this guy, or off at a concert with this guy, or, or even going to the movies with this guy. And so I began to feel that she didn't love me. It was even possible that she loved this guy. Now, the, what did that produce in me as a response? It made me fearful. It made me feel rejected. It made me hold back. All those sorts of things. Luckily, of course, Liz came to her senses. Uh, <laughs> 
and 24 years ago we kind of got together which was fantastic but it's interesting when I look back at even how that changed me my response when I knew that she loved me was one of confidence and I became someone willing to take risks and there was a joy in my life as a result of that I'm telling you you need to know that he loves you it changes everything when you do to his disciples Jesus says in John 13 a new command I give you love one another as I have loved you to the Thessalonian church Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 for we know we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you to the church in Colossae he says in Colossians 3 therefore as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved and in Revelation God says to the church in Philadelphia I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. What a fascinating scripture. God loves you. Jesus loves you. You are dearly loved. And God will make even his enemies acknowledge that he has loved you. Can you see how important it is to God that we know that we are loved? It is a declaration against the enemy's work in our lives that we are loved. God loves you. He does. You are loved. You are loved. You, you, you are loved. John says that we know his love. We know his love. And I want to encourage you this morning to think about that. Do you know his love? I, you do if you stop and think about it for a moment. Think of the many things that that God has done since he's been a part of your life. Think of the power of his presence, what it feels like in those moments when you suddenly know God is wrapping his arms around you. Think about the promises of God that he has given you, the blessings that you know came into your life from him. Think about the answered prayers. Think about the intervention, the breakthrough that he brought when you needed it most. Think about that prophecy that gave so much hope. That person that he brought who gave so much encouragement. Think about that sense of growth and purpose that you have. Those are all reminders of his love for you. You do know his love. But the question today is, do you rely on his love? Because John says we must know it and we must rely on it. He loves you. And we haven't even talked about what he did in terms of his salvation for your sins. I read a story of a, of a medieval monk who announced he would be preaching the following Sunday, Sunday evening on the love of God. Sunday came and as the shadows fell in the evening and the light ceased to come through the stained glass windows of the chapel, the congregation gathered. In the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a single candle and he carried it over to the statue they had of Jesus on the cross. First of all, he took the candle up and he illuminated the crown of thorns around Jesus' head. After a moment, he then took the candle down and illuminated the pierced hands of Jesus, the wounds that held him on the cross. And then he took the candle and he took it to the spear wound in Jesus' side. In the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and left the chapel there was nothing more to say. Sometimes we've got to remember what he's done for us. We've got to understand that this, this 
this opportunity we have to live free from guilt and shame that burdens so many people in the world today that shouldn't burden us because of what Jesus had done, has done. That was because he loved us. It's, a, it's an old cliche. I'm sure you've heard it before, but cliches usually become cliches because they carry an element of truth. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you and me. You can rely on that. God's love for you is something you can rely on. And it's why you can count on God. Not because he is good, though he is. Not because he's faithful, though he is. But you can rely on him because he cares for you. Because he loves you. You can rely on that. Because God loves you, you can know and trust. Three things this morning. Number one, you can know and trust that God's intent is always good for you. God's intent is always good for you. Always. God is never nasty. God is never childish. God never holds back. God never punishes. God never stonewalls you. He never uses you. God never abuses you. His intent is always good. And in everything that goes on in your life, every set of circumstances, He is at work, Romans 8 tells us, for your good. And we need to remember that. Secondly, because he loves you, you can know and trust that God will never give up on you. He will never give up on you. He never grows tired. He never runs out of mercy. Grace is never out of stock with him. You can walk away. You can, and he will let you go. You can take your hand out of his hand, and he will release you. But as long as you are holding on to him, it doesn't matter how weak you are or feel. It doesn't matter how bad or good you have been. If you're holding on to him, he will never give up on you. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, if we disown him, he will also disown us. If we let go of him, he will, respecting our free will, let go of us. But even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Love is who he is. He is like the prodigal son. Even if we walk away, he is always waiting. He is always looking for that return. He is always believing for you to turn around and come back. Thirdly, because he loves you, you can know and trust that God will never lose track of you. Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Where can, where can I go from his spirit? Where can I flee from your presence if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to him. You can run, <laughs> but you can never hide. And how grateful I am for that. You know, as a university student, I remember so many nights collapsing in my bed after a night out at the pub, a night on the booze. I, I remember so many nights walking home with a howling southern wind around me. After all of the, the night's escapades, it always came back to this. It always came back to me being alone. Filled with and carrying a devastating hole inside of me that no amount of alcohol could fill, no amount of relationships could fill. And I would fall into my bed at night, and even in my darkest place, I would always pray before I went to sleep. He always knew where I was. 
You know, there's a confidence that comes when you know that he loves you. There's a confidence that comes into our everyday lives that comes when we know that he loves me. David went out and faced his greatest enemy, Goliath. Do you think he went out there kind of hoping that maybe, maybe is God in a good mood today? You know, can, well, is God going to show up and help me in this whole thing? Absolutely not. He knew that God loved him and he relied on God's love for him and for the nation of Israel. He went out there confident and he took the big sucker down. When the, when the disciples were out there sharing the gospel, talking to people about Jesus, in fact, facing martyrdom, were they there trying to tot up all of their good deeds and hoping that they kind of earned enough brownie points to get across the threshold to have God's approval? Not in the slightest. They knew, they knew that they knew that God loved them. And they relied on that. I remember once being in a taxi up here in Auckland. I was up when I was in NLT many years ago. And I got in a taxi and uh, the, the driver was a lovely, lovely man wearing a turban. And I said, so, because I was an ignorant South Islander at that point. I said, so what's with the turban? Uh, like, well, what's your religion? You know, I'm, I'm super politically correct. And, uh, and so he said, oh, I'm a, I'm a Sikh. I said, oh, cool. And I managed to withhold myself from making some sort of joke about seeking, which would have been highly inappropriate. But I did say to him, so what do you guys believe as a Sikh? Like, do you know God personally? He says, no, we don't know God personally. God's not really kind of knowable in that sense. But we believe that at some point God will take us to Nirvana, to, to, to be with him. I said, so how do you... Like, how does that happen? He says, well, we have to do enough good deeds. If we do enough good deeds, then eventually God will accept us. And I said, oh, cool, what's the number? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, what's the number? Like, how many good deeds have you got to do to kind of know you're in? I mean, man, you don't want to live your whole life just kind of hoping you made it. He says, well, I don't know what you mean. They're, they're, I don't know what the number is. I said, so you spend your whole life hoping that you made it. He went silent. We can have confidence and we can rely on the love of God because he loves us. You see, difficulty isn't God trying to stop you. It's the devil trying to stop you. Trouble isn't God saying no. It's the devil saying no. Hardship isn't God trying to slow you. It's God working to grow you. While the devil's trying to convince you all the way through that this is what you deserved. What did Paul say in Romans 8? He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from what? From the love of Christ. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Can you see the power, the importance of love that we've got to know this? We've got to know that our starting point is that we are loved doesn't matter how big or small our bank balance is. doesn't matter how tough our life is in this season. You've got to know you're loved. You've got to know you're loved. That's why if you go on a mission trip, you can go to countries where their poverty is appalling, where the conditions they live in is atrocious, and yet they still have the love of God. Why is that? Because none of those things can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The love of God. We must know the love of God. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, separate us from what? From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. First key thought this morning, because I am loved, I can stop trying to win his approval. It's not my competence that God loves me for. He loved me before he gifted me. 
It's not my character that God loves me for. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, Scripture says. It's not even my charisma, my conversational skills, or my exceptional charm that God loves me for. He loves me because I'm his kid, not because I'm a clever adult. That means that there's nothing that I've done that made him love me. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He loves you whether you love him or not. Whether you're a believer or not. Whether you feel worthy or not, he loves you. I love that scene in the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, where the old priest is bent over the, the count in prison, imploring him to have faith in the, in, the pre, in, in the young count who's been through betrayal and so many things. He says, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And the priest says, don't worry, son, it doesn't matter. He still believes in you. I'm telling you today, even if you don't believe in God today, he still believes in you. You see, our problem is not about how much we love God. It's about knowing how much God loves us. The Bible says that every hair on our head is numbered. I love Liz, but I have no idea how many hairs are on her head. I've honestly, I've never bothered counting. It doesn't mean I don't love her. It's just I don't love her that much. You know, the Bible says, uh, the Bible says that, there are, that, that he knows the time we, we get up and the time we go to bed. I don't even know half the time my kids go to bed these days. But do I love them? Hugely. How much does God love you? More than you can possibly imagine. John had a revelation of this. I love this. When John was writing his gospel, his account of it, the funny thing was he kept writing about himself in the third person, but he, he referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. It's quite funny, really. He didn't just do it once. He does it over and over again. When he's talking about himself and the other disciples, he doesn't talk about the other disciples that Jesus loved and the disciple that Jesus loved. No, he talks about the disciples and the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, it's quite funny. And it almost sounds like he's being arrogant, but he's not. He just has got, a, he's got an understanding. It's kind of got inside of his head. He's got it. This is how he sees himself. I'm the guy that Jesus loves. I'm the guy that Jesus loves. Even at the end, he begins to, at one point in the gospel, he talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus. He talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> He's not putting himself above Mary. In fact, he, he ended up taking Mary into his own home and looked after her as his own mother. But John got it. What would it be like? How would it change your life if, if actually you referred to yourself? I, 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 me, yeah, no, I'm the guy that Jesus loves. I'm the girl that Jesus loves. When, when our kids were small, I remember going in one evening to kiss the kids goodnight, and um, I'm kissing one of our girls, and she is lying there in bed. It's kind of dark. The light from the hall is coming through, and we're just having a nice moment together. And she says, Dad, out of all of us kids, which one of us is your favorite? <laughs> you know, most parents have had this discussion at some point. I said, oh, baby, that's easy. You're my favorite. She was delighted. I said, and your sister's my favorite. And your cousin's my favorite. And your brother's my favorite too. She goes, Dad, you can't do that. I said, but honey, here's the problem. It's true. It's true. You're actually all my favorites. You're all so different and unique and I... I you're all of my favorites. 
Do you know what I love? That girl now obviously is a teenager, and at some point, several years ago, she got hold of my cell phone. And she went into my contacts list, and she changed her name next to her number in my phone. So now that every time she calls her, every time she texts, do you know what pops up? It says, favorite child. I'm telling you, you are God's favorite. You know, when your prayers pop up on God's email screen, it doesn't come up with Brian or Jill or Sue or whoever it is. It comes up with favorite child. And he instantaneously knows that it's you. You are God's favorite. Amen? You know, some people do things in church because they feel grateful. They, they turn up to church on Sundays because they're grateful. They get involved in a life group because they're grateful. They serve on the dream team because they are grateful. They, they rock up at our working bee because they're grateful. And it's a wonderful thing. But you know, some people come and turn up not because they're grateful, but because they're guilty. They turn up to things because they somehow feel they've got to get some brownie points on the board because of what happened last week or because of what they said to their wife or their husband, or for whatever it is, just a general feeling that they're not sure where they stand with God, stop it. Just stop it. He loves you. Receive it. Take it as fact and start walking in that. God loves it when you know that you're loved, when you rely on Him. It is so important. Second thought is this, because I'm loved, I can stop judging people. This is so important. And by judging, I don't mean not having an opinion. We can all have an opinion. An opinion is fine. And in fact, in the, in the scriptures, there are two words that are often translated judgment. One is the word krino, which means to judge. But the other one is katakrino. When you put kata in front of krino, it intensifies the verb. And when you look at how they use krino, really, a better translation is opinion. Katakrino is judgment. And what I mean by judgment is this. I mean stating outcomes. And you all know what that's like. When we say to somebody, you will never change. That, that's not an opinion. You're stating an outcome. You are going to hell. God hates people like you. Those are judgments. Those are stating outcomes. But the problem is we don't know outcomes. We won't know it till the end. And there is nothing worse than being proven wrong. And I'm telling you, you cannot predict the power of the love of God. Never call anything over anybody's life. You see, every person on the planet, every person on the planet is loved by God. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for people's bad choices. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences for evil. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences for those things. There are, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. I recently read a story from the Jewish Talmud. The Jewish Talmud is the rabbinical, theological, uh, and legal commentary on the Old Testament. And, and often it has additional details to the Christian faith on stories. And the one I read was about the Exodus story. The story was told that after the Israelites had crossed out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army uh, were drowned as the waters rushed back into place. And as the army was destroyed, God's angels wanted to celebrate the enemy's demise the Talmud says, and God became angry, and he said, stop celebrating. They were my children too. Stop celebrating. They were my children too. When you understand God loves you, and that actually God loves everyone, we can stop judging people. Thirdly, because I'm loved, 
I can love others. You know, love is the most powerful force in the universe. It simply is. I don't care how you slice it. I don't care about nuclear bombs or, or, or hypersonic missiles. The simple truth is, is that love is the most powerful force in the known universe. How do I know? Because God is love. That simply trumps everything. And when we bring love to any situation, that can be a game changer. In January of this year, in an edition of the magazine Premier Christianity, uh, Jackie Pullinger was interviewed. Jackie Pullinger, she's like 74 now. Uh, Jackie Pullinger, at the age of, what, 16 or 17, got on a boat, got off in Hong Kong when God told her to. She had 15, the equivalent of 15 New Zealand dollars in her pocket. And uh, she went into the walled city, a lawless part of Hong Kong City at that time. And she has worked there with the poor, with the drug addicts, with the triad gangs ever since. And she was interviewed by this magazine. This is what she said. She said, my message is always the same. It's how to get us sure enough of God's love so we can go out and share it with the lost. That's why you've got to know that you're loved. That's why you've got to know that you're loved because you won't go out. We won't go out. I won't go out. I won't share those things with my neighbor. I won't talk to people about Christ if I'm not really sure that I'm loved because that's the very foundation of the whole thing. The interviewer asked her about how she went learning the language. Young British girl. She said that she didn't speak much of the language when she first arrived in Hong Kong, but it was good, she said. It probably stopped me from saying too much. She says this, and I quote, I thought that preaching the gospel was explaining how Jesus came to die for your sins. And of course, she says, that's not preaching the gospel at all. He asks her, why isn't it? She says, because that's not necessarily good news to anyone who doesn't know love, who doesn't understand your language, who doesn't follow your logic. So it was a good thing because I found out that the people there were not listening anyway. They were watching to see how I acted, whether I really did love them and if I really did love them then maybe God really did love them as well we get the team up as we come to a close this morning but let me say this you are loved you are you are loved 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 more than you could possibly conceive right now right here in this season of your life with whatever's going on in your world you are deeply and dearly loved you're not feeling it doesn't change a thing you're still loved you feel like you don't deserve it that's irrelevant he loves you you won't believe it well it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that you are still loved you don't see the evidence of it? Well, you're not looking closely enough because he loves you. You're feeling miles away from God? You, in particular, are loved. You don't believe that God could love you? Well, I'm telling you, you're loved. Everything changed for me, strangely enough, when I stumbled across Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In a season of my life, I read that scripture, I memorized that scripture, I said it to myself dozens of times every day. And somewhere in the midst of that, it dropped into my heart and I began to realize that I really was loved. I believe there's nothing more important as we start this year than for you to know that you 
are loved. You know, if, uh, if you didn't respond earlier on when, when there was an opportunity to know Jesus, then I'd love to give you another opportunity right now. So I'm going to ask us all to close our eyes one more time. And if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, if you want to make him the center of your heart, if you want to know and experience God's love, then will you pray with me this morning? Something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin has separated me from you. But I believe Jesus came to die for my life. And I receive him now as my Lord and my God. Thank you for making me clean. Thank you for making me yours. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name. Amen.